Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Bid Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Bidemir Logunje. Today on the show, I'll be analyzing the context around the recent statement that was released on July 19th by the United States, United Kingdom, NATO, Japan, Norway, and the European Union that cast blame on China for recent massively disruptive cyber attacks. I'll also be talking about why airline operators are now being increasingly targeted by cyber criminals. And I'll wrap up the episode by discussing the rising cybersecurity threats against cloud service providers. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. So for a long time, China seemed contented to just operate on the much quieter end of the state-sponsored hacking spectrum. So there is this thing called state-sponsored hacking, where states, um, countries, nation states would either sponsor hackers or condone the operations of hackers from within their territories. So China was um, not really in the news. The people in the news were mostly Russia, North Korea, um, to some extent, Israel, um, Saudi Arabia, and so on. So while Russia and North Korea carried out hacks, attacks, ransomware operations, data leak operations, or even launched massively disruptive cyber attacks, and then by doing so, they blurred the line between cyber criminals and their own intelligence agencies. So while Russia and North Korea were doing all these things, China quietly focused on more traditional espionage and intellectual property theft. So on Monday, July 19th, several countries collectively called out a shift in China's online behavior and how China's primary cyber intelligence agency's trail of chaos um, increasingly now rivals that of Russia or North Korea. So that day, on that July 19th, the U.S. government joined the United Kingdom, the European Union, NATO, and governments from Japan to Norway announcements that spotlighted a string of Chinese hacking operations and the United States Department of Justice also separately indicted four Chinese hackers, three of whom were believed to be officers of China's Ministry of State Security. So China's Ministry of State Security um, is this new, relatively new um, ministry, um, state agency that was created in 2015. And when China created the, the ministry back in 2015, they basically moved the operations of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, um, in terms of cybersecurity, in terms of offensive cyber operations, in terms of information operations. They moved all of that to the MSS, the Ministry of State Security. So what, um, the White House statements then cast blame specifically on the MSS for a mass hacking campaign that used a vulnerability in Microsoft Exchange Server software to compromise thousands of organizations around the world. Um, it also rebukes the ministry for partnering with contract organizations that engaged in for-profit for cybercrime. So basically turning a blind eye to or even condoning extracurricular activities such as infecting victims with ransomware, um, using victims' machines for cryptocurrency mining, and financial theft. So there's two things going on here. The Ministry of State Security in China, MSS, was basically taxed with running China's influence operations, information operations, disinformation, misinformation, um, offensive cyber attacks against the targets that basically are in line with China's strategic goals, 
However, the officials of this MSS, they then do, they conduct extracurricular activities, which again, China turns a blind eye to, or even condone those activities. So when, when those officials infect victims with ransomware just to collect money on the side, the Chinese government wasn't sanctioning them. They didn't limit their operations to just the ones that are focused on China's strategic goals. So the long list of cyber scenes represent a significant shift in Chinese hackers' mode of operation, much of which Chinese um, analysts say can be traced back to the country's reorganization of its cyber operations back in 2015. So I was just... um mentioning how the MSS, the Ministry of State Security, was created in 2015. And all of this led to a significant shift in how Chinese hackers operate. So 2015 was when the Chinese government transferred much of the control from the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, to the MSS. And over time, the MSS has become more aggressive, both in its hacking ambitions and in its willingness to outsource operations to cyber criminals. <clears throat> so usually, the non-governmental hackers that the MSS works with, they don't necessarily obey the norms of state-sponsored hacking. So the norms in cyberspace is kind of, it fluctuates all the time. There are norms such as countries shouldn't steal intellectual property from each other. If you would use cybersecurity against other countries, it should only be for spying, which um, President, former President Obama took issue with, um, with China. Um, so basically, don't use cybersecurity, don't do anything in cyberspace that would affect or undermine another nation's national security. But then these non-governmental hackers that the MSS work with, they don't necessarily obey the norms of state-sponsored hacking. There's a kind of greater tolerance of irresponsibility. And this is because the MSS has always preferred using intermediaries um, and also front companies and contractors over its own hands-on operations. And this model of both human intelligence, which we call humans in cyber um, security, as well as traditional cyber operations, this dual model allows the MSS to maintain plausible deniability and then create networks of recruited individuals and organizations that can bear the brunt of the blame if and when they get caught. So while those contractors offer the Chinese government a layer of deniability and extreme efficiency, they also lead to less control of the operators themselves and also less assurance that the hackers won't use their privileges to enrich themselves on the side, which we've seen evidence of, or whether the MSS officers who award the contracts won't just directly benefit from them. So overall, the White House statement on Monday, July 19, points to a broad, messy, and in some cases, unrelated collection of Chinese hacking activities. And there, there was a separate indict indictment that named four MSS-affiliated hackers, three of whom were MSS officers, all accused of a broad range of intrusions targeting industries around the world from healthcare to aviation. And what was more unusual than the data theft that was outlined in that indictment was the mass hacking that was called out in Monday's statement. So that, that mass hacking was basically a group known as Hafnium that was, it's, it's now been linked to China's MSS. They broke into no fewer than 30,000 exchange servers around the world. 
So they used this vulnerability that was present in Microsoft Exchange and then broke into at least 30,000 servers. The hackers also left behind web shell. So a web shell is basically something that would allow a, an, um, a hacker to regain access to those servers anytime they want to gain access to them. And also introduce the risk that other hackers might discover those backdoors and then exploit them for their own purposes. So they, they hacked all these thousands of, of exchange servers. They left stuff behind to allow them come back anytime they, they want to. But then other hackers were just searching for people to hack online. They would discover these web shells, which actually happened, and then go into these servers because now there is something that would even make hacking those servers easier than before. So um, the the that element of the hacking operation was clearly untargeted. It was reckless and dangerous. They, they basically went after as many exchange servers as possible. They didn't exactly target maybe a specific company or a specific country. They were just kind of, it's something we call spray and pray. But this kind of spray and pray was even more guaranteed because now they're not praying for something to to, to latch onto. They are basically going after confirmed vulnerabilities and then just hacking at will. So, um, of course, we now know that at least one ransomware group tried to piggyback on Hafnium's campaign shortly after it was exposed. So, to be clear, there's no evidence that the MSS Hafnium hackers themselves deployed ransomware or cryptocurrency mining software on any of those tens of thousands of networks. Instead, the U.S. government's criticism of the Chinese government for blurring the line between cybercrime and cyber spying appears to be related to other years-long hacking campaigns that more clearly crossed that line. So back in September last year, 2020, the U.S. Department of Justice indicted five Chinese men who worked for an MSS contractor known as Chengdu 404 Network Technology. Um, in cyberspace, um, in cybersecurity circles, that company, Chengdu 404, is known as Barium before they were identified as that particular company. And all those five Chinese men stand accused of hacking dozens of companies around the world in a collection of operations that seemed to liberally mix espionage with for-profit crime. So they were basically doing espionage activities on some, um, on some targets. They were basically stealing stuff to then sell and then make money off of and so on. So similar to the Afnium Microsoft hack, the Barium hackers used a broad and indiscriminate hacking technique to carry out those intrusions by breaching software providers to carry out repeated software supply chain attacks that hid malicious code in otherwise legitimate software. So such as um, there's this IT management tool called NetSarang, there's a hard drive cleaning tool called CCleaner, and also the laptop maker ASOS. So they basically hacked ASOS, sent, um, they compromised different software that ASOS add to their laptop before they ship it out. And this supply chain attacks, as they are called, is kind of like a force multiplier. So you hack a company that provides software so that when that company ships out that software to their customers, everybody that uses the software then gets hacked. So instead of going after the people that use the software one by one, you just hack them from the source. So that happened also with the solar winds hack in um, last year. Um, there was also a recent so, um, supply chain attack, um, the, the Kaseya um, supply chain attack that happened just 
two, three weeks ago. So while in some cases, those hackers focused on highly targeted spying, in other cases, they just stole millions of dollars worth of virtual currency or deployed ransomware to paralyze victims' networks, such as um, the case of two Taiwanese oil companies in 2018. So according to James Lewis, who is the director of the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, China's operations increasingly resemble those of Russia in its increasingly large-scale hacking techniques, its hybrid of spying and cybercrime, and its use of coercive hacking. So the MSS targeting of Taiwan and those two Taiwanese oil companies in 2018, for example, mirrors Russia's similarly disruptive cyber attacks in Ukraine. So um, if you've been following the news, you'd notice how Russia keeps going after Ukraine ever since they annexed Crimea in 2014, um, March 2014. There was this, um, th there's a cyber attack against Ukraine's power grid in December of 2014. And ever since then, there's been one form of attack or the other against companies and government organizations within Ukraine. So while Monday's statements by the US, UK, EU, and NATO, and so on, th those statements drew attention to the MSS lack of control over its contractors, they seem unlikely to curtail China's efforts because in, in order to avoid escalating this cyberspace, um, anything, any conflict in cyberspace, the US and other um, countries would apply sanctions just like they did to Russia in response to the solar wind attack. But applying sanctions to Russia is one thing. Applying sanctions to China is a whole different ballgame entirely because the U.S. government is heavily dependent on China and vice versa. So sanctions in one direction would lead to retaliatory sanctions in another direction, which would definitely hurt American companies, American manufacturers, all the way to small businesses within the U.S. So all of this is something... The U.S. government and all these other U.S. allies are, of course, aware of. So it kind of limits what they can do and it limits them to just making statements like this one. So we see what you're doing. We know that your mode of, mode of operation has changed. We want you to know that we know, but then doing something about it would not require, again, a broad coalition of efforts, just as this statement took efforts from at least eight, ten governments. So China will, of course, deny the connection because of the plausible deniability that comes with using contractors in cyberspace in this manner. And the same lack of hands-on control that has contributed to the recklessness of the MSS hackers for hire also helps the MSS to shrug off the scorn of the world's government and makes China far less likely to rein them in. So next up, I'll be talking about the airline operators that, um, and how they are being targeted increasingly by cyber criminals. So a recent study by Eurocontrol has shown that over the past year, the aviation industry has seen an uptick in cyber attacks. The analysis covered discovered a 530% rise in reported or detected cyber attacks by the team over the past two years. So in 2020 alone, 61% of all identified cyber attacks on the aviation industry were conducted by state-sponsored cyber criminals and hackers. One or more of the reported cyber attack methods or attempts did not target safety-critical aircraft systems or passengers' mobile devices that were connected to the in-flight internet um, system. 
The study notes that the EATM search system identified or received 755 reports of cyber attacks that targeted airlines just last year alone. And many of the attacks, around 95% of all cases, were financially motivated. In 55% of the cases, airline operators incurred financial losses because of the attacks. And sensitive data theft or data leaks accounted for 34% of all reported incidents. So Eurocontrol assumes that the attackers will continue to pursue the strategies they've used over the last two years. And because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which affected refunds and airline ticket adjustments, researchers have suspected that the rise in fraudulent websites related to these cyber attacks targeting the airline industry was caused by the uncertainty created by the pandemic. So many people during the pandemic, um, they couldn't travel. The people that had to travel found out that their flights were being canceled simply because there wasn't many people, um, enough people that booked the flight. So the airlines had to adjust their tickets or put them on a different flight or consolidate two flights or three flights into one. So all of those uncertainty was something that um, cyber criminals, of course, they, they knew what was going on. And like I've mentioned in previous episodes, cyber criminals are one of the most adaptable criminals in the world. They would observe a situation, adapt to it, and then use that as leverage to target people and, of course, record some reasonable success. So this study by Eurocontrol showed that 122 of the 206 total documented cyber attacks against um, aircraft manufacturers were carried out by fraudsters trying to profit from their intellectual property. It has also shown that several highly visible attacks, such as the one on EasyJet in the UK, have been effective um, because that was basically happened back in May 2020 just because um, EasyJet was trying to figure out how to manage customers and so maybe they were not necessarily paying attention to their own type of security. So they suffered a data breach where travel records, email addresses, personal data of up to 9 million EasyJet passengers were compromised. In addition, the data indicates an increase in ransomware attacks. So back in June 2020, VT San Antonio Aerospace was attacked and approximately 1.5 gigabytes of confidential data was stolen. So next up, I'll be talking about the rising threat against um, cloud service providers. So according to a report from Positive Technologies, a growing number of cyber criminals are developing malware to conduct cyber attacks on virtualized environments, and some of them are actually aggressively deploying vulnerabilities and exploits that are already found in software for deploying virtual infrastructure. The number of cyber attacks increased overall by 17% in 2021 compared to the first quarter of 2020, and 77% of those were targeted attacks. The most popular vulnerabilities for attackers to exploit were the breaches in the Microsoft Exchange server software that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that the Chinese threat actors took advantage of, and that was the proxy logon, and also an outdated file-sharing program called Axelion FTA. The share of ransomware operators in attacks on government institutions is also increasing, as they were found in 70% of the attacks. In addition to ransomware, attackers also use banking trojans in 18% of malware attacks, remote access trojans, also known as RATs, in 13% of malware attacks, 
and spyware in 8% of malware attacks. So popular cloud services that facilitate the interaction and simplify IT companies' infrastructures also became a favorite target for attackers. According to that study by Positive Technologies, the reason for this phenomenon is that by attacking a cloud service provider, hackers can gain access to the customer's data, which is what happened, for example, during the January incident involving the Bonobos clothing store. So that store suffered a data leak because there was an attack on the cloud service provider that the company used to store customer credentials and personal data. So the attack wasn't on Bonobos directly. It was on a cloud service provider that Bonobos used to store their customers' information, personal data, shopping card information, and so on. And a similar incident also happened with the network equipment manufacturer um, called Ubiquiti. The report highlights a growing focus on force multipliers, so targets that allow attackers easy access to many victims, either through supply chain attacks or by going after cloud service providers. In the Bonobos incident, for example, the attack appeared to have been a result of a backup that was stored in the cloud in an insecure manner. So a good way to resolve this kind of problem is to implement a digital asset management solution that tracks and alerts on changes in the state of cloud services. So incidentally, cloud security is fundamentally different from on-premises infrastructure and is still relatively new for many security leaders. And actually, many organizations are working frantically to get the right policies in place to support the transition into a cloud-first or hybrid mode of operation. The shared responsibility model can be quite challenging when there's a mix of cloud service providers and infrastructure, and each of them with their own different security requirements. In the end, there will still be a need for layered security and visibility in the cloud, and cloud-first tools can help to meet those needs through robust security that also adapts to the dynamic nature of cloud environments. So that's all I have for today's episode of The Beat Picture. The production, editing, fact-checking, audio engineering, and graphic design were done by yours truly, Bidemi Ologunde. Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity topics, news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can all learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you subscribe to The Beat Picture on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please share the show with anyone you think might benefit from it. And for questions, comments, or any suggestions, please email me at bdme at thebeadpicture.com. You can also get in touch on Twitter at beadpicture. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. That would really help to promote the podcast. Thanks for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.